Hello, everybody. It's Royceberg again. Today, I am talking to a very, very lovely human being, Andrea Wynn. She is a cookbook author, incredible home cook. Um, she speaks on the subject. She is a champion of Vietnamese food as a Vietnamese American. And I, I've known Andrea for years. I think she's a delightful human and a terrific writer. And um, I was really, I was really, really happy to sit down with her and talk about her most recent book, because Andrea has delved into a lot of different facets of Vietnamese cooking over the last six books. But this was, this was interesting. It was very personal for her. She had some health issues and um, really needed to change her diet and ingest a lot more vegetables and cut back on her meat intake. So I honestly, it was really fun to talk about this and and her journey in discovering a different side of the cultural cuisine that she has spent so long engrossed in. We recorded this a, a little bit ago, so apologies if any references are out of date, but it was just a really lovely conversation that I wanted to share with you. We had just uh, recently, uh, before recording this, had uh, dinner at the wonderful La Cita in Chinatown with her husband and some other friends. I'm so glad we had this conversation. So without further ado, this is Carpetbagger. I love starting these just like we just jump into the middle of a conversation, but uh, I'm talking with Andrea Wynn, who is a dear friend and incredible cookbook author. You've written nine, nine books? Oh, seven. Not seven? yet nine. Okay. Well, <laughs> it'll be nine before you know it. Um. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know. You know, we all have these careers. It's like, you never know when it's going to end. You know, it's like you're as good as what you, your last project. <laughs> I uh, apologize for the misnumbering uh, of your work, oh, but I th- okay. like seven books is unbelievably impressive. I think it was interesting because I was just, as I was sitting down getting ready for this, I was. I was reading the intro to your latest book again, and I think it's it's interesting because it's something tying back to what you were just asking me about, like that that kind of that bridge between the classic and the modern, and like this changing world. It's like I have spent I was never classically trained in culinary school. But I spent, you know, my childhood cooking with my mother and my grandmother, who emigrated from uh, Alsace in uh, France, uh, the border of France and Germany. And and so I have, like, my background is very much in that, like, classic French and everything. A lot of the first things that I really pursued cooking-wise were in that field. And then I've spent so much time in my in my professional cooking career in Los Angeles cooking with Filipino and Chinese and Thai chefs and and my my, my favorites of those being the aunties in, in, 
in Thai kitchens because those are the most the most demanding taskmasters, but you will also learn the most from. Um, and possibly hallucinate on the amount of chilies that are put inside <laughs> the dishes. Um, all of a sudden, you realize that when you go to make a classic beurre blanc, I just don't make it the same way anymore. I use a Filipino spiced coconut vinegar, and I use this thing instead of this thing because it's just better. In a way. Well, that's that's interesting. I mean, I've I've traveled to Alsace many many years ago, and it's such a very traditional place, right? Yeah. And tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like the land of butter and foie gras, and sausage and, <laughs> it's and sausage, you know, and, yeah, sweet wines and <laughs> saucisons, like <laughs> yes, <laughs> and Germany's right there on the other side. Yeah. And, and they were always switching, you know, the Germans controlled it and the French controlled it. It's like half of my great uncles, you know, the older half of the family, I think there was 12 kids before they, I think there was like eight by the time they got here. Um, but half of them grew up speaking German and half of them grew up speaking French. Yeah. But you're here, you grew up in, in California, in Northern California, yep. and then you have that layer of your identity so even despite the fact that, that you had a grandmother who was firmly rooted in Alsatian cooking, um, you were firmly aware of the kind of blending and modernity yes. of the West. And, yeah. And, but, but at you the just same have time, those you're little like, influences. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a, a French chef friend who's from that part of France, and, and he came here <laughs> to America, and he was like, Holy mackerel. Oh, my God. You know, I can, like, do all of this fun stuff that I couldn't do when I was growing up. It's so interesting that we apply this, like, very letter of the law um, definition to authenticity as opposed to how I think our our parents, grandparents, ancestors actually cooked, which was just having flavors and the 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 flavors that result from combining different ingredients that are passed down to them and then cooking with the things around them as their surroundings changed. Like, I don't think any of our, the people that we come from would cook the same way they did when they were alive if they were alive today in California, in Correct. Santa Cruz or in Los Angeles. Correct. There's, that's just not realistic. And the thing is that with authenticity, I think that people get bogged down because if you're not familiar with the cuisine... Mm-hmm. You're going to be trying to define it for others, right? And you're going to define it for yourself. So if you're a critic, then you're going to say, oh, well, dear readers, this is what Filipino food is like, and this is where you ought to go. And if you're not Filipino, how can you possibly define the cuisine to your reader? Because how true are you? Yeah. Right? Even if you spent time in that country, that's like, there's so many regions in every country and every town and every like it's such a broad thing exactly and then with vietnamese food um it's the same thing but you know and 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 but vietnamese people we oftentimes and i think every ethnic group does this to themselves we oftentimes are like oh what is the canon you know what are we you know what is what makes pho pho <laughs> and then it's like oh pho cannot be um vegetarian i remember when um, the file book came out and people were like, oh my God, she has vegetarian <laughs> file in there. It can't possibly be 
oh my god and the chicken <laughs> seafood pho and there's a pho cocktail and i'm like people go to vietnam you know the country has not stood still and we have buddhists <laughs> yeah and part-time it's like things don't just stop evolving at this one point exactly. you know and i think people try and freeze this thing in their mind of like oh this is the only way to do this thing and i think that's honestly from my perspective one of the dangers i've seen with a lot of people that have worked for me or i've encountered who've come out of culinary school where it's it can be really good for some people who need that structure but it can also be really dangerous because it gives you a box to think inside of and then you never stray from that. You, this is the way you make stock. This is the way you make this. And I never had that box. So no one ever told me I was doing it wrong. And then I would just <laughs> figure something new out. You know, it's like sometimes it doesn't fucking work. And you right. do, there's a lot of trial by error. But there's also a lot of, like, exciting discovery. Because you, no one said you can't do it that way. So you do it that way and then you end up at a new result. But don't you think that comes with age as you become a better cook? Because oh we God, do yeah. evolve. I mean, like when when we're young and when I started out writing, I was like, oh, got to hone true, you know, to my yeah. people and my traditions because I need to replicate that as best as I can, um, given my situation being a, a Vietnamese American. And then as I've gained confidence as a cook and as a writer, I play mm. more, you know, yeah. and I'm like, and then I see the, the cuisine as being something that's always changing and evolving and malleable. And I become a more malleable cook and I change yeah. methods and I'm looking around to see what happens. And so much of like the immigrant um, foodways experience initially like evolves from nostalgia. Yes. Right. Like we think yeah. about food of our past and what we miss. And then with Vietnam, with so much travel, having gone back and people going back and forth and the internet, like now recipes are not necessarily like informed by nostalgia, but it's informed by this fluidity of information that happens. So, you know, you have like these interesting, um, you can call them hacks, you can call them shortcuts, but you know, like mm -hmm. things that that I'm doing in evergreen Vietnamese with rice paper. I'm like, holy shit, you can like over soak <laughs> them and then use them as a rice sheet, you know, as a rice noodle. Oh my God, you can grill them. And this isn't like being informed by, by like, it, it's being done in, by Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese expats, as well as in Vietnam. And that is like so exciting that there can be that kind of culinary dialogue happening. But the thing it's is incredible. that when people look at a cuisine, they're like, what? What? That's not what I see happening, you know? And yeah. and and so um, that's not what my mother does. And I'm like, well, you know, your mom's got some new things to, to check out. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> your your and, mom should get out of the past. Exactly. And my mother's yeah. into this, you know, the new stuff with with uh, in my book. But and she's 89 years old now. But I think that that authenticity issue is so interesting, Royce, because like I. I feel like as um, people of color and food, we're always like having to answer to that, not yeah. just by people who are not of of uh, our heritage, but but also people who are our heritage. So it's like 
within and without. And there's all that yeah. self-doubt. It's like, how authentic and true am I being? And in Vietnamese culture, we we have this ridiculous phrase called "cong dung," which is like, "You're not right," and it's like an insult that goes back to like generations behind you. And you're, you know, someone's if someone says that that you're not being true, "cong dung," that means like, "Oh my God!" It's not just insulting me, but insulting my parents and my grandparents, and we're just like a bad clan of people. <laughs> Do you have Heard. anything like that that you have to deal with? Uh. I think le- less less for me. It's more. Uh, it's my background is more just uh, sweeping things under the rug and cold shoulder and heavy, heavy, heavy amounts of guilt um, <laughs> that are implied. It's we we've just we just found a way to do it without actually saying anything to each other, which is possibly worse. So that's like don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You said something in this book, and then in the in the talk uh, at now serving when uh, you were doing the book signing about that I think ties into this authenticity conversation where you realize like I don't feel good eating the way I'm feeling, like my body is changing as I'm aging. Like there's so many components to this, and with the the diet you had, and I've gone through this myself. I don't feel good eating this way anymore. And so you you were looking at changing your diet, but also it led you to discover so many things that are that that your the way your mother actually cooked back in Vietnam and realizing the things that you thought of as, you know, your classic childhood cultural foods, she was only making them that way because of the things that were available to her and affordable in America. And I think it's an interesting – I've worked with so many different people from so many different cultural backgrounds and helping them build their restaurants and certain things. And there, there's so many people who are still trying – and I think a lot of it because of the external pressure from people from their own culture and outside saying you have to do things this way. Like this is how Puerto Rican food is done. This is how this food is done. Instead of – like we don't we don't work the same way we used to. We don't we're not in fishing boats all day every day or we're not working in the fields. We're not you know my 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 peasant ancestors or we're not you know moving rocks out of you know fields all day every day. So we don't need to eat that same level of heavy like there's so much heavy stuff and it's these you're burning so many calories at that point. You like but we don't work that way anymore. Like most of my work is done in my head. Like the amount of time I spend at the gym to try and get healthy is, is crazy. And I think it's an interesting, I think there's something so beautiful about being able to go back and take those, the actual, the things that I think actually define and I could be wrong on this, but actually define your cultural heritage, those flavors, the the experience you have while eating them, and apply them, like we were talking about earlier, with the things around you and the, and the, the way you want to eat now. Like, you still can have that experience without, you know, frying everything. Exactly. Or, like, or cooking a, a chunk of meat or a yeah, lot of yeah. meat. And that is... a 
something that I discovered while writing Evergreen Vietnamese that just like really blew my mind away. This conversation that I would have with my mom and, and you know, that, that book started because I had turned 50 and I was having all of these health issues related to the fact that I was eating way too much weird ass food when I was like traveling and working. And you know, Royce, what it is, you know, you're like, you get her to a restaurant, so many exciting things, you end up ordering 75% of the menu. And then they send out the rest of the 25%. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm one person. I can't yeah, do one this. person, you know, or maybe there's two of you. And then it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, it's it's a it's a wealth of um, of of joys. Yes. that People are sharing. And and I um, I received that wealth very nicely <laughs> to the point where I just was I felt so bad. And yep. my 50 year old body couldn't process it like it could as a 35 year old, as a 40 year old or as a 45 year old. And um. And, you know, it's, I was no longer in that Walkman phase of my life <laughs> You know, I was in the Spotify yes. <laughs> realm <laughs> where things I got, went along. I got AirPods now. <laughs> I got AirPods now. Exactly. It's not, it doesn't even cost you 32 bucks anymore. I mean, you know. Um, yeah. Anyway, so so I was like, I've got to do something. And I was going through perimenopause. And I think men and women go through um, midlife physical changes. And they, mm-hmm. we just call them different things. And um, I needed to do something. And, and I considered different ways to change my diet. And the Mediterranean diet wasn't going to work for me because... I don't have a Mediterranean background. There's only so much olive oil I can eat. And, <laughs> uh, and, and my omega-3 <laughs> seafood isn't going to always be salmon. Okay. <laughs> and and so I was like, what can I do with food that I'm familiar with, which is Asian food, mm. which is Vietnamese food, which and, and I realized that I needed to focus more on vegetables. And this is something that you and I both share is a love and appreciation of vegetables and what we can do with yes. them. And as soon as you start t- tinkering with vegetables, you're like, oh my God, they're so much more exciting than meat. You know, they come in different colors and textures and flavors. And and especially and in California. And the very simple ways of preparing them change yes. the flavor profile so dramatically. Exactly. And they're vivid and they don't really require much. And you can manipulate the hell out of them. And there's so much <laughs> damn fucking fun. <laughs> and, and then, yes. you know, I like I lost weight. I'd go to my mom because she and I had been talking about um, about midlife changes. And I have to tell you, like. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners are like women, but, you know, women of color. But I go to my mom and I say, mom, meh. So when I call her in Vietnamese, I'm like, meh. I'm going through menopause, perimenopause. She's like, didn't have that in Vietnam. Nope. That's a Western notion. That's my favorite reaction. We just didn't have that. We just didn't have that. That's a Western idea. We just like kept busy. And she goes, you just deal with it. And, um... And, you know, part of that to me was like, okay, you know, I just got to deal with it. So it's kind of like, you know, she's been slapping me in the face like that with her her encouragement since I was a kid. But but, um, it really got me to thinking, okay, I I can do this. But then when I told her I was like eating so much more vegetables and really feeling better, she Mm. said, well, that's what how we ate in Vietnam. And all of a sudden I was like, 
say what, lady? (laughs) (laughs) This is not what I grew up with. Yeah, this is not what I grew up with. And she's like, of course not. We changed when we came here to America. We had a lot more meat, you know, and she, she, she told me we, I would stir fry, let's say, 300 grams of protein for eight people, household yeah. pe- people, you know, that's like 10 ounces. And if there was like some kind of soup that had meat, there'd be 100 grams. That's like three and a half, three ounces of meat. It's just like not that much. And it's really like an accent, yeah. you know, but like coming to America, having access to cheap meat, it was just like this incredible thing. And it has changed, it changed our diets. And I had no clue. When I was growing up, oxtail wasn't a thing. And and so it was, you know, London broils and chuck roasts and stuff that you could get at whatever, you know, store or Costco or whatever for the lowest price per pound. And then and then you're stewing that instead. And it's like that's a shitload of meat. Like yeah. that's now and that's now the main component. And the carrots and potatoes are just the little thing on the side. And it's it it changes the profile of everything from it's like we think we're doing something traditional, but we're actually just like drumming it up. It's 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 wild. It, it is, and the thing that is fascinating to me is that um, when I cook with good vegetables and I bring them to my mother from the farmers market and whatnot, she knows the difference. Yeah, you know, she's spent like more than half of her life here, and. Our steaks on a weekly basis when we came to America was the London broil you mentioned, Royce. Yep. You know, from the weekly circular ads (laughs) for the supermarkets, which my mother read like as if, you know, it was like the bestseller for her every week. (laughs) You know, and she would like cut those steaks to like, I don't know, like half an inch or something or three quarter, and she would pound on them, you know? (laughs) And then she would pan fry them in her her cast iron skillet after marinating them with like garlic and maji seasoning sauce and Mm. pepper and stuff. And um, thinly slice them because we never sat down to a steak of our own. And, but the thing is that Mm -hmm. like we ate like that on a weekly basis, but like nowadays, you know, I'll cook with just a small amount of meat and a lot of vegetables and quality vegetables. And she appreciates that so much. And I've, I I look at her and it is like taking her back to a, ver- a different time in her life. And it's mm. absolutely fascinating to me. She knows the difference. She's reliving that difference. She appreciates the vegetables, um, the, the flavor of a good carrot or a good potato, good yeah. greens. Um, and... I think that um, we can always go. I, I, I use that her as an example because she's my strange litmus test, and I don't know how long she's <laughs> going to be around, right? So I'm always like, "Hey, mom, what do you think about this?" You know, and and uh, and good tofu. She grew up next door to a tofu shop in northern oh, Vietnam. So like, there are things in uh, many things in in evergreen Vietnamese that are inspired by when my parents were young and and growing up in Vietnam or when they were young parents in Vietnam, you know, with things like um, there's a sesame salt. It's just toasted ground sesame pounded with salt and sugar. And my dad was like, we, everyone had a little bowl of that in the house, in their homes when mm. I was growing up. And you just sprinkle some on rice or maybe you would dip, you know, some like boiled um, cassava in there mm. or you know yeah. or like sprinkle it on greens so I serve it on greens almost like a, a, a 
you know, uh, Ohitashi kind of thing. And, and it harkens back and pays respect and homage to that experience of just using very simple ingredients and, um, you know, and their experience. But like, when I talk to my mom about it, she goes, what? And I was like, this is what y'all like served me when I was a teenager yeah. and everybody had left the house and I was like the youngest, you remember? And she's like, oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and they would simmer daikon with pork and caramel sauce, which yes. is something, you know, like you're cutting the meat. Nowadays, yeah. all of the, the pork and caramel sauce recipes is like pork belly. Oh, that's all there is. Pork belly and caramel sauce. And once you add the daikon, it adds a totally different dimension to the 100%. dish. And it's absolutely delicious. And you're eating like lower protein. But it's like what we have now that we eat as immigrants and ex expats are, it's like luxury food. It's like, you yeah. know, rich people food. And it's not necessarily healthful in the long run. It's great yes. when you're young. Yeah. You know, everything's great getting, when you're young. Yeah, but you know, like I, I, now serving was so funny because one of the people who came up to me um, during the signing was this this young guy who's probably in his twenties, and he said, "Look, I'm not your age, but I just want you to know, I got gout while I was in Vietnam on a oh trip God. recently, <laughs> and I'm now like trying to eat healthier and eat more vegetables. And your book's gonna help me. Thank you." <laughs> You're so very welcome. <laughs> it seems more likely that he got gout f from his diet in the United States than in Vietnam. But that's yeah, exactly. That's a whole other story. story. But that's he's like, wild. you know, I wasn't eating well all along, yeah. and um, he was a healthy young man. You yeah. know, he but he but I think that we're all going through this. But but social media and a lot of the stuff in food um, makes us feel like it's got to be fried. Or it sucks. It's got to be fried, or it's got to be, or it's taking every everything seems to be this like, and and even going back to you know food festivals and, I mean all the years I did Pebble Beach food and wine and Los Angeles food and wine, it's like, you just walk around and you're like everything seems to be a chef dick measuring contest for how much <laughs> yes. fucking foie gras and uni you can put on shit, and I'm like I love foie gras and I love uni. But I, like, after I would leave Pebble Beach, I'm like, I can't look at that stuff for nine months because it's yeah. so much. The concentration is like, it's a it's a race to see how extravagant you can make everything. Right. But there's, at, at the same time, though, Royce, I mean, like, I'm not going to be one of these extremists and, like, cut out all of this stuff, you know? No, like, my God, That's no. a thing, you know? Like, I love caviar. Like, once, once, once in a while is great if you're outside of California, right? <laughs> 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 and I'll I'll eat something from one of those cones dating dating yeah. myself, you know, at the walk <laughs> the, the festival walk around. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. And, and, but um but at the same time I think that we do, you know, we ought to have these conversations about um healthful and honestly sustainable eating and it's not just sustainability in terms of environmental issues but sustainability mm -hmm. in terms of like how do you keep this Ourselves. up for the long run yeah 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 like you know you i think that there are more people who want to um eat 
low meat and flexitarian diets and be plant-based on that level rather than be strictly plant-based. And when we talk about plant-based, so much of the discussion is on a very purist level. But turns out the term plant-based is only dates back to like the early 2000s. So it's like 20 years old. It's not like an old, old thing and it's not rigid. And there are camps that are like, if you're going to be plant-based, it's like vegan. But then there are people like, it could be vegetarian, but others are like, you just need to focus on plants first and you can have a little meat. Yeah. I think it's healthy that everyone like finds their own thing that works for them. But I do think it is a much, a a more holistic approach to our diets and a, a less puritanical view of it is so much healthier. I'm just like, this is, I feel good eating this way. I feel good eating this much greens and this much meat and this like you and meat should be something that is it should be a luxury. It should it sh- to an extent. It should be something it's like I if I'm going to make myself it's like I have a a great bone-in pork rib chop in the fridge right now. But it's like I was at Standings and I know where that meat came from. I know its quality and it's not cheap, but I'm going to enjoy the shit out of it. Yeah. When I finally yeah. end up at home. <laughs> right. <evening>. Eventually, <laughs> when you're, you're at home cooking for yourself instead of like standing on, on the line. But, you know, the, the other thing, too, is that um, there there's so much to be gained from cuisines that are not the Mediterranean diet. And that's the other thing that that yes. I like to bring up in terms of healthful um, lifestyle is that you've really got it in for those Mediterranean, Sandra. Well, because like you hear it all the time, you know, know. And, and they're like trying to suck up tofu too, because they're like, oh, you know, the other thing you got to add to the Mediterranean You're like, hands off like, my tofu. tofu. Like, hands That's off my right. tofu. This like belongs to Chinese people for 2000 years and we know what to do with it in Asia. Please, hands off the tofu. You're not going to suck it up in the Mediterranean diet. And, I'm, and I, I, I just want to make this point because I think that that we can be smart and inclusive in terms of talking about... Um, food and cooking you know in asian cooking like you're you're cutting meat up into small pieces <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing like few people sit down to to that pork chop you're talking about you know and even in my family we'd like my mom's like slice it up because number one you yeah. got to pick it up with with chopsticks number two you really don't have that much of it because you really couldn't afford it um and and number three like actually if you slice up meat and you marinate it there's more exposed to the seasonings and yes. like you get really great flavor, you know? And I mean, I love a good pork chop, but you know, a shoulder roast is great too. Slice and marinate and all that 100%. stuff. But, but I think that t- to include Asian foodways in healthful eating choices and discussions is important because within our communities, there are people who have um, a lot of dietary um, considerations these days and, they, but they quietly come up to me and they're like, how do I cut down on my sodium? How do I cut down on my salt? And I'm like, you know what? Start cooking at home. Stop eating out. You know, if you're open to it, introduce MSG, which is lower sodium yes. into your diet. You know, Absolutely. stop eating all that sugary stuff and and eat more vegetables. And yeah. it's you can do it. You got to practice it. It's going to take work. You know, something my mom always used to say, it's just like everything in moderation. But I mean, you know, like how, like when you have, 
when you run a restaurant, you have like mm. all your prep and you have, you know, if you're doing like a vegetable focused restaurant, you've got like so many ingredients pre-prepped in front of you. And I think home cooks can borrow a lot from that in terms yeah. of dealing with vegetables, because I think people get tripped up by thinking like, oh, my God, I can't do this because, you know, I've, I've just got like this one head of broccoli in my steak. <laughs> Like, what do I do? But it's like, and I was already like, planning on steaming the broccoli with the cheddar. Yeah, that's right. And pouring <laughs> some cream sauce on it. Oh, of um, course. Oh my God. Of course. Yeah. And and twice baking my potatoes. Um. And you know, but but broccoli gratin. That, yes. Um. But you know, you've got to like just practice this and 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 play with it and prep vegetables so that they're there at the ready. You know. And yeah. with things like with Vietnamese cooking, it's like think of you know borrow from like professional chefs or just like smart it's not it's just smart cooking wash your lettuce ahead of time get your 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 herbs wash ahead of time keep them perky you know i have like a um recipe in evergreen vietnamese that you just like can keep around for like a month because that's what a lot of restaurants do they're not really like prepping it like a la minute they're not like fire nope. the nook gem for table <laughs> nine you know no they have it in like a gigantic vat or jar that they're ladling out for you and you can yes. do the same thing at home too and there's all of that kind of 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 um smart home cooking that people can use so that they can have like this food at the ready for them and they can assemble it quickly because that's what I do at home you know I'm not just like making Vietnamese food but I'm making like Thai food and and Filipino food and you know American French you know Mexican whatever but but you just need to have like this stuff at in your pantry and the versatility and basically they use a lot of the very very similar ingredients and we don't always see that discussion, you know, that kind of intersectionality of, of flavors, but we, we ought to. And that's part of the most beautiful thing about food is it is a result of, of so much blending and melding of cultures that is, you know, through various means, some of it very horrifying and violent. <laughs> yes. I was hosting a culinary demo stage one time and my my friend Rashida who does um Bridgetown roti which is a West Indian food is incredible food and she was talking about how the dish she was making was a result of you know colonial influence and all of these different influences and thankfully we're very good friends cuz <laughs> I I mean I was like so you're saying colonialism is good because we got to this point. It's a joke, obviously, but it's... And I know colonialism is terrible, and I'm not saying that I support colonialism. But it is it is interesting. Uh, we're here at this point in time, all of this history behind us, and the, the weird and wild melting pot that is food and these dishes that we've all come to love and experience is the result of so much history. I don't think I, I don't think that you can um, sweep colonialism <clears throat> under the rug anymore, but there has always been this this romanticism about colonialism. You know, mm-hmm. the the European uh, <laughs> the, the European stepping into the you know 
the native wild tropical areas and just yes. taming them, you know, and, and really showing them the, the way and introducing, yes. yeah, and yeah. introducing the, the savages to like these just modern, better ways. <clears throat> and I, there's a part of me that like gets so bugged by um, anyone, including Vietnamese people who say to me, oh, pho, you know, it comes from poto pho. And I'm like, there is very little evidence of that. And it was a very, it was a dish that was created out of circumstances, not like inspired by one dish. And once in a while, I'll see like, you know, potofo recipes that have like a little like spice, you know, in it. Like, mm -hmm. I can't remember, maybe there was like a little star anise or something. I'm like, and where did they get that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But from, like, the the savages that they were trying to tame. But anyway, I mean, it's that kind of thing where I'm just like, I don't want to romanticize it. But I'm also no. not going to decolonize things. Because if I were to, like, strip away those aspects that have impacted Vietnamese culture, um, you know, the French and the Chinese and, you know, influence on Vietnamese food through imperialism and colonialism... I'm going to be taking away so much of what is Vietnamese cuisine, 100%. its identity. So I think yeah. the best thing is to confront it head on and say, look, this is a result of colonialism. And this is how Vietnamese people who are cultural survivalists have appropriated it. And it's like a reverse appropriation of like the banh mi to like turn it into something that is wholly Vietnamese. You know, there were like, okay, French, you know what? You started out having this baguette culture, this sandwich culture that is like so fanciful and expensive. We're going to make it the people's food. Yeah. And we're going to take away, you know, the notion that it's French. We're just going to call it something made with wheat flour. <laughs> and now we're going to stuff Which, it funnily with enough, it is the people's food in France too. It's like they, the price of baguettes is controlled by the government. Yeah, they right, be right, more right. Than, you know, it's like, right. no, it's, it's only three things. Yeah, you no, know, that's but, a but, very yeah. Yeah, and so there's like this 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 kind of appropriation that can be very positive, um, and so I think about colon colonialism and appropriation mm -hmm. on many many different levels, and I think that um, you can't just like simplify it and and join the chorus of you know being anti-colonialism because that's not the reality for a lot of of people, yeah. and like I said, you would if you removed French colonialism and Chinese imperialism from Vietnamese culinary history, you would be removing a lot of what um, the cuisine is and can be. And if you removed that, the, the elements that were borrowed from Vietnamese cuisine from so much of French cooking, it wouldn't be the same thing. Like there's some, yeah. of, some of the most incredible experiences, food experiences I've had in France that are still indelibly with me involve... Very, like things that are taken straight from Vietnamese culture and incorporated into something else, it's like classic rabbit dishes. And it's like, it would be nice if it was simple and if it was, and there was some easy way to push a button and strip away the complicated history of things. But human history is complicated. And without justifying or in any way sweeping those things under the rug, there's that. The, the food that's come out of that is is kind of it's kind of incredible 
that's out of so much of, I mean, all of human history is violent and brutal in so many ways in, in every, in every culture and every, um, period in history. But the, the food is this thing that's kind of this one kind of beautiful thing that comes out of all of it. Exactly. And exactly. It seems and you odd can't to di- Yeah. You it. can't like, you know, deny that, but you need to talk about the history. And I think that if you don't talk about the history with depth, you know, for example, going back to pho, I mean, the, the French slaughtered a lot of cows because they wanted their, their steaks. And there were like these odd, tough cuts left over that Vietnamese butchers like put on sale. And, and it resulted and the, and the cow parts were re- ended up being replaced with water buffalo parts in a particular noodle soup in northern Vietnam. And there and the noodle soup happened to be served with rice noodles. And there were all of these changes that were made and spices were added because, you know, Vietnam's like right next door to southern China. And so you end up having, you know, fog created at the turn of the, the, um, at the beginning of the 20th century. And so, you know, you, you want, and understanding that gives you a much richer interpretation of what, of what food is and culture is. And I think that it's so simple for me to just scream like, ah, that's like colonial food, you know, screw the French, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, eh, you know, I remember one time meeting one of my father's um, cousins who was a um, four-star general in the Northern Vietnamese army. And he was the political commissar, meaning that he was um, really the, um, in charge of propaganda for the Northern Vietnamese. And he wore, when he met my husband and me back in like 2002, 2003, he wore a French beret, served us a bottle of Italian wine in his home in Hanoi. And by that stage, he was old and older and um, no longer needed bodyguards. And because mm-hmm. he wasn't a signif- super significant person in Northern Vietnam anymore. And I tell you all of this because he looked at us and he said, we were never angry at the American people. We were angry at the American government. And the Mm. same thing with the French. So it's a very practical aspect and approach to saying, you know what, it's like, it's okay. We, We, you know, the people are all right. It's the government policies that that were um, that bugged us the most and what we fought against. And I mean, granted, I mean, you know, he's a man who chooses his words very yeah. carefully, <laughs> having <laughs> been in charge of propaganda. But I, yeah. I share that because I think that, you know, those are the kinds of insights that that add layers to our understanding. Yeah, because it's too simple to just wipe things off. Yeah, and I think there's a a beautiful, I think one of the things that I hope is going to, alongside of all of the negativity and and bullshit that comes along with social media and the internet, I think one of the things that I hope we start to see more of, and I think, you know, I I, I always go back to Tony Bourdain's Iran show, and it was like, there was such a, a perfect example and there was another one he did in Jerusalem where he sat down with and had dinner with Palestinian and Jewish families in those settlements and just like sitting down at the table with people 
and talking about how they interact with their neighbors and what their lives are like and realizing how similar we all are and how easy it is for our governments and the people whose interests it serves to keep us all at odds with each other or thinking that these people are evil or this this country as a whole is evil and they promote all of this realize that we're all we're all people we all sit down and have dinner with our families and we all and i i hope more of that is promoted because i think to kind of as we're wrapping up here to sum up everything we've been saying i think like if so much beautiful food and shared identity and experience culturally in food can come out of so much pain and brutality over the years imagine how much more can come out of it if we're all just talking and sharing ideas and growing it in a wonderful and peaceful way yeah and it can happen in the kitchen you know and it can happen at the table and that's the beauty of of what we do and i guess that that's why rice we we keep plowing ahead even though there are many times of the day when you and i are probably like ah, ah, why are we doing this why do i keep I had, doing this I had that moment yesterday i was walking out of a meeting and i was like what am i doing like why am i still doing this and then i remembered i was talking to you today and i was happy oh well same here so thank you so much for this conversation thank you. that was such a joy mm-hmm.